Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Ali H. Al-Hori, an award-winning applied linguist from Saudi Arabia. Dr. Ali Al-Hori, thank you so much for coming back, 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 back on Lost in Citations. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Uh, always great to talk to you. We have a lot of things to discuss on today's podcast. Um, and the main thing we're going to talk about on today's podcast is a forthcoming book chapter written by yourself and Phil Hiver, Open Science and Applied Linguistics, an Introduction to Metascience. And this will be coming out in the book, Open Science in Applied Linguistics. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, but first, I, I think we should start with um, some big news in, in the field and unfortunately some, some sad news. Uh, the passing of Zoltan Dornier. At some point, I, I'd also like to ask you about the iApple conference in Cape Breton. Um, but I kind of like to hand the floor over to to you. Um, as people know from listening to past episodes, his name has come up a lot. And uh, you studied your PhD under him. And you have uh, done a lot of research with him and collaborating with him. So I'll just kind of hand the floor over to you. What What would you like to say about yeah, so his passing was sudden and surprising, although we were aware that he was sick. What we didn't expect him to pass away that quickly. Mm -hmm. He was first diagnosed with, uh, with cancer in the 30th of September, and a few days later, in November the 3rd, he received the news that his cancer was inoperable. Hmm. So, and then from November, and he died in June. Hmm. So that was like seven months something only. So the time he had. So we, although we were aware that he was sick, we didn't expect it to be that fast. So he died at the age of 62, which is very young. Hmm. And as you know, he was a prolific applied linguist. He published like 60 journal articles, 40 book chapters, and 30 books. Two of them were still in the press when he passed away, which is impressive. Yeah, one of those books uh, uh, might be the, a previous episode, uh, Lessons from Exceptional Language Learners with uh, Katerina. Um, the, the, those were two. Those were a series of two books. Uh, he might have. Are you talking about? Do you know which other books are also in press? Well, with her also two books with her. Right. Okay. Her two book. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, um, for people that are interested in those two books, we talked about that on a previous episode. Um, yeah, and that that I mean, we talked about it on that episode, but I had interviewed her about those books, and I had reached out to him. I think last June about it, and he was excited about uh, these books and, of course, lots of other things. Um, so, yeah, I was really shocked. I, I remember seeing your announcement that there was going to be some sort of event, an event for him at iApple. Um, so I wasn't really sure what was going on with that. And then I guess the news that he died, and then I guess the event at iApple was more of a celebration of his life. Or can you can you talk about how that all came together? Yes, yeah, so before that, 
um, we decided to um, write a book in his honor, teaching, um, researching language learning motivation with Bloomsbury. Oh, okay. And that book, you know, we dedicated that book to him. The original story, I'm not sure if I talked about it in a previous episode with you or not. I don't think so. But Fruzi, my co-editor, told me that she's from Hungary, just like Zoltan. And she told me that um, in Hungary, they have this tradition that when an academic reaches the age of 60, they write a book and dedicate that book to that academic. Hmm. It sounds okay, nothing unusual about this. But then she said, they keep the project a secret oh. until it is finished. So that was, hmm, that's interesting. Let's do it. So I got in touch with several people and they all sh showed interest in taking part. So we did this project and we managed to, you know, there was, you know, COVID and things and was delayed and so many people, even including the, the chapter authors, some of them had problems and family members dying while they were writing the book their book chapters and we you know we talked about this in the introduction to that book and you know we thank the um the authors for their dedication despite these circumstances so we finished the book and we dedicated it to him and we sent him a copy of it and then at iapple we wanted to um do a symposium on that book which is in honor of Zoltan. I see. So we asked him to, if he would like to come, but he couldn't because, you know, he was sick. And then we thought at least we could try and live stream it so he could watch it. So that wasn't possible technically, you know, the conference didn't, couldn't do that. And we then we thought at least we could record this symposium, and then send it to him to watch it. That was the, the last plan that we wanted to do. But unfortunately, just two weeks before the symposium, he died. Mm. So, yeah, so we had to sit again and see what we are going to change to accommodate the fact that he actually died, you know, just before the symposium. So the symposium, the, the recording is available on my own YouTube channel. If you want, you can go to my YouTube and see the full symposium recorded. Well, maybe I'll put a link to your website and on that website has links to your YouTube or is it easier just to link it to the actual um, YouTube? I can give you my YouTube link also. It's just, you know, my YouTube channel, just easier. Okay. What's, so what's the name of the book again? Researching language learning motivation, a concise guide by Bloomsbury. I see. So, how how was that symposium? Was it sort of emotionally charged or that must have been kind of a unique thing because like you said, it was kind of a, a surprise. I haven't watched the video yet. Um, I don't know. I've just kind of avoided it for some reason, but can you, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, because I mean, maybe, there were yeah. some, some major names involved, including Jean-Marc Duaheli, Peter McIntyre, Martin Lamb, and Amy Thompson, 
and they shared personal stories with him and you know it was it was an academic symposium it wasn't like you know stories about his personal life like eulogies or something it was academic mm, i see so by the way zultan wasn't only an applied linguist and many people probably don't know that around the time i started my phd with him he also started his own second phd in theology and i was you know and he was kind of i'm not sure he was becoming more interested in theology at that time and it was like his you know second field hmm. and while I was and the other students were his supervisees meeting with him as our supervisor, he was also meeting his own supervisor doing his PhD and attending super supervisor meeting and receiving feedback on his research. So it was kind of, you know, two things happening at the same time. And he was attending conferences in theology also. And he was, you know, saying to us, you know, I, I thought people who attend theology conferences will be religious people. And, and but when I went there, it was like just any just like any other field in academia. There were, you know, animosity and and, you know, people have different theoretical orientations and disagreements and other things, just like any mm. other field. So, and finally, when it was time for his own viva, he, he uh, finished his viva and graduated, but he received a major revision. Oh. And the reason was, he was telling us this story, because his approach in his thesis wasn't conventional, because he was coming from applied linguistics from a completely different field. So it wasn't following the conventions of theology. So his examiner said, you are not, it seems like they had two main methodologies in theology or something, and he wasn't following either. Hmm. So his, his, his examiners deliberated for like half an hour about how to, you know, what revisions to require. And then they decided to ask him to write an extensive introduction explaining his methodology and its rationale, etc., etc. And he did that and passed. Wow. And he was also an open science advocate. If you go to his website until now, um, you will see pretty much all his research articles, all his chapters, just in PDF format, readily downloadable. And he created this website years ago before even, you know, the open science movement, which started to gain attraction just in recent years. And some of these things you're talking about, um, maybe we should tell people, you you and uh, Phil Hiver actually wrote an, an obituary for Zoltan. And is this, where where can people read? I, I We can put the link because, again, it's open access on on your website, but uh, where will this be published? It's going to be published in language learning because he was an editor at language learning for quite some time. So we approached the editors of language learning and they were willing to publish this journal, uh, this obituary at their journal because he was, you know, 
with them, a member of their editorial team at, for some time. Yeah, I, I, um, I read it. Uh, v- very well done. So as usual, you and you and Phil are great writers. So um, well, well done on that. It must have been must have been a bit odd to to write that. It's, this all must be kind of a strange experience for you, right? Um, but I guess that is yeah. academia, right? I mean, I talked about it a little bit with Katerina. The, the greatest compliment to a person or an academic is, you know, what they leave behind through their, not only their research, but the people they influenced, right? So yeah, people like true. yourself and Phil and, you know, all those other PhD students who continue to do good work. Uh, you do live on, right? So, I mean, I've never met, I've never met the man. Um, I, I had a few emails back and forth. He seemed very nice. Um, you mentioned that in the obituary as well. He was, I guess you said he was kind of famous for always giving people time, yeah, which is something true. difficult to do when you're as busy as he is. So, um, did you end up going to the funeral? No, I watched it online because it was, you know, in the UK and, they fortunately they live streamed it. I see. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the main meat of today's conversation, which again is this chapter: um, Open Science and Applied Linguistics: An Introduction to Metascience. And if you've been following Al, uh, Dr. Al Hori on online, you've probably been seeing some things about the post-print pledge and, and some of these open science initiatives. So um, let's kind of go back a bit. Uh, what got you interested in open access? Okay, so so the term open science is a broad term and open access in is one thing within that umbrella. When you talk about open science, you can talk about open data, you can talk about open peer review, you can talk about open instruments, they're different things. But when it comes to open access specifically, what got me interested in it first was, and I had to read the literature. Hmm. And at my institution, at that time, you know, like before I started my PhD, I was, you know, reading the literature, trying to, to follow up with the latest. There was always these paywalls. Mm-hmm. So I remembered like, you know, I think it was 2006 or seven. I was, I saw an, an interesting article about autonomy and motivation and the relationship between them. I think it was a conceptual article. I don't even remember the author now. And I, I, I said, okay, let me read this paper, but it was behind, behind the paywall. And until today, I haven't read that paper, believe it or not. Now, were you part of a program at that time with access to a digital library? No, no. That was before my PhD. Oh, I I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now for an article like that, a, a reader, a potential reader could pull their credit card and pay like 35 bucks to buy an article. You know, many people would probably afford to pay 35 bucks for something that they need. But the question is, what next? Mm -hmm. If you are going to write a serious research article, 
I would imagine the average number of references you have would be like 50 to 70. I'm not sure, you know, I'm just guessing. It could be around that number. That would be average. If you have, say, 50 or 60 references, how many resources have you actually read before selecting these 50 references to include in that specific paper? Mm. Of course, that would be a lot more. How can you afford to pay all this money? It's just impractical. So, so this problem of paywall is a pervasive problem in academia. And the question is, where is this money going to? Mm. Now, authors who do the actual work don't get paid, don't receive anything from that money, from the subscriptions. And these authors receive their salaries from their institutions, from their universities, mm -hmm. and receive grants from their institutions and from other entities. And if they don't receive salaries and grants in some fields, they will have to quit academia, of course. Mm -hmm. So so now at the first level is the university that supports this research. At the second level, who does the review? It's also academics and reviewers don't get paid for their work. Who pays them? It's the university pays their salaries. If they were not employed academics, they will quit academia then they won't, won't do the review. So again, it's the university that pays for that job. And then when we move to the next level, who does the editorial work? It's also academics. Many editors don't get paid for their work. Some editors do get paid, but it's very little. I remember one editor saying that he could earn the same amount of money flipping burgers. Mm. And so... Basically, they can't, they can't get sustainable income from doing editorial work, so they have to be faculty members at universities. So the university is the one paying for this work actually to happen. And then after all this, the university also pays the publisher for subscriptions. Yeah, that's what I was so, going to, that's what I was going to say, um, the, this, this whole process you've outlined actually hurts a lot of people. So going back to what you said, you know, people, early career researchers who are not in a program. So for me, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be in programs where I have, you know, access to the library or I have a position where my university, which employs me, like you said, has subscribed to these journals. So I can access these journals when I'm on campus or I can access these journals through the online uh, system of, the master's or the PhD program I'm in. But then you also bring up this point, what's the motivation for these reviewers who are very busy with their own research, right? And then what's the motivation for the editors who are very busy with their own research? And then we're hearing all these stories about, especially this year, people are waiting for their papers to be reviewed. And it's something you talked about in the paper. You know, It's kind of a strange process. Someone could just say, no, I'm not going to review it. I'm too busy. And so you don't know who your reviewers are. Um, so yeah, it's. I'm glad you've taken a long, hard look at this, um, especially like you said to put to put yourself to put myself in your shoes. Or I, I've been in that spot as well. You know, you go to Google Scholar and you hope you can get some of them, 
Um, but if, if you can't, you just move on and you just don't, you end up trying to cite other sources, I guess. What else can you do? Yeah. And if you think about it also, 35 bucks for a single PDF, you can imagine you just instantly get it. Why would you have to pay 35 bucks? That's too much. You know, if you are selling a product that includes printing and binding and shipping, okay, there will be some expenses, but to buy a PDF that you get instantly. And even, you know, it gets worse than that. Some publishers, you know, this 35 bucks is not, you don't, you still don't own the PDF. They lend it to you for 24 hours only. Can you imagine that? Mm. So, yeah, so, so the publisher gets this money. The publisher is not doing the research or the editing or the reviewing. They only do the copy editing and the hosting, actually, basically. And there is some research, recent research, so showing that over 70% of academic articles are behind paywalls. That's a scarily high percentage, over 70%. Well, can we, historically then, how, how did academia become closed access like this? Okay, so... Historically, now, how did you now currently the profit margins of publishers exceed that of Apple, Google, Amazon, because all this free labor, we mm. academics are basically volunteers for these mega companies. So in the past, before there were any computers, publishers were a necessity because imagine, you know, you have that old typewriter and you were going to write a, an article and you had to have equations on formula and other things that would have been very difficult so there was a need for a publisher well, well think about that even before that a lot of people were doing it you know early 1900s 1800s before then all everything's handwritten yes yes so so the publisher at that you know, came to academia and said, okay, I'm going to do this service for you. I'm going to do the typesetting and I could charge you for this service, but I'm not going to charge you. Instead, I will take the copyright so that I can sell this product and recoup my investment. Hmm. And then the publishers sold subscriptions to universities at that time, you know, like, you know, eight years ago or something, there weren't too many publishers and there weren't too many universities anyway. So it wasn't a problem to buy a few subscriptions here and there for universities. And so academics went to their university libraries, found all the literature they needed, Everybody was happy. It, that, that system worked. Nobody was complaining at that time. But then somebody called Robert Maxwell in the UK came into the scene and saw that this industry could make him very rich. And he started in this business and started to create many, many journals in increasingly narrower subfields. 
like you know a journal for this and a journal for this and a journal for this and there were so many journals to subscribe to and at at some point it became just unbearable there is even a term for it it's called the serial crisis where universities are no longer able to afford to subscribe to all these journals and at the same time we don't actually need them anymore because we have computers now. We can do the typesetting. We can, you know, write a reasonably organized paper. And so why do we need these publishers now? So historically, there was a need for publishers, but I don't think there is anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very bold of you to say that. I mean, it's uh, it's actually hard to, to wrap your head around. In another paper that is going to come out later, the paper you sent me, you actually said where this whole conversation is going is the death of publishers. Is that something you actually – oh, maybe we're, we're, we're jumping ahead. Um, all right. So what is the reaction of academics to closed access? Okay. So, of course, they are pissed off, obviously. And some people – um, started to try to change things. So, for example, in 2020, a mathematician called Timothy Goers created a campaign called The Coast of Knowledge. Hmm. So what is the coast of knowledge? So that campaign targeted one publisher in particular, Elsevier. Incidentally, Robert Maxwell was, you know, an important founder in, in that company. And that, that campaign, you can still Google it and find the website. It's still there. If you want to even sign up, it's still there. So that campaign asked uh, people to pledge to boycott Elsevier in terms of authoring for their journals, reviewing for their journals, and, or you can choose, doing editorial work. And then the reason why they targeted Elsevier, because they said that, you know, Elsevier was actively anti-open science and doing questionable practices, etc. If you go to their website, you can see the rationale, it's there. And that campaign attracted over 20,000 signatories. Wow. Yeah, it was a popular campaign, but just, you know, a couple of years ago or so, there was a paper about, uh, about you know, analyzing these 20,000 plus signatories. Did they actually adhere to their pledge not to have anything to do with Elsevier or not? And they found that only 37% adhere to their pledge and about 23% did publish in Elsevier in violation of their pledge actually oh. so there wasn't you know too much adherence and I started thinking why you know it was you can you could argue that it was a noble cause let's say people were upset with the status quo but people didn't adhere, even though they went to the website and signed up and signed up. And I think one of the reasons was one of the reasons was that 
the approach was kind of confrontational. Mm. At the end of the day, Elsevier is a major publisher. And if you want to boycott them, you have to boycott a large number of journals in your field. And that could conceivably harm early career researchers more than established researchers. Mm. So that was that could have been one of the things, one of the reasons. The other thing is that this campaign was interdisciplinary. No matter what your field is, you can go and sign up. It was good in some ways that it was interdisciplinary, but if it is interdisciplinary, people don't know each other. Hmm. Don't know the next person who signed up. How can you hold other people accountable? How do you form an identity to keep momentum? You don't know the other people. Everybody is a stranger. So after a few months, a year, do you probably forget about it? The other thing that I thought was missing from the cost of knowledge was, why didn't you think of citing Elsevier journals? There wasn't anything about saying, don't cite Elsevier journals, for example. Hmm. And personally, I think that if only citing was included and not, you know, boycott authoring, reviewing, editing, if just don't cite Elsevier journals, this would have been much more effective because this will lower their impact factor. Because impact factor is based primarily on citation. And if other people know that if they publish in these journals, they won't be cited, this will in- discourage other people also from citing. So I don't know why they didn't think of including, um, not including citation. Yeah, you and you brought this up in the chapter. Uh, you you brought up this term ecological fallacy. So and this was sort of in response to what you're saying, how academics become a bit obsessed over the impact factor. Um, but this fallacy, uh, there's a line from this chapter, uh, conclusions made at the aggregate level are then carried to the individual article level, past and future. So someone that published in a journal 20 years ago, they are going to get credit for the impact factor now or yeah, vice versa, yeah. right? Yes, that's true. It, it, it's not like 20 years ago. Um, the situation is... Now, when you say the, the idea of impact factor has received a lot of criticism in academia, a lot of criticisms. And the thing, the point that you mentioned is one of them. It's the impact factor can be sensitive to extreme outliers in that journal. Mm. For example, if one pay, just one single paper in the journal receives, let's say, thousands of citations, the impact factor of that the whole journal will inflate. So even if that journal published low-quality papers, they will still be technically included in a journal that has an impact factor of so-and-so because of another paper, you see? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't... There, it has a lot of problems. So the impact factor reflects the past, what some articles in the past received a lot of citations 
So we take it and then judge the quality of future articles in that journal. So, oh, I published in a journal with an impact factor of three or four or five because other people in that journal published highly cited papers. So is my paper good enough? That doesn't tell you anything, right? Well, let's let's focus this from your perspective uh, because I think I could be wrong, but I think you've had over 100,000 reads on your, your work or I, I don't know how many citations. So for you, you must think, well, wherever I publish, I'm probably going to increase the impact factor of that journal just based on the quality of work that I have done and I will do. This is probably what you're thinking now. When you were doing your PhD, did you have these discussions with Zoltan about, oh, you need to focus on this journal or you should you should really get into this journal to jumpstart your career? So fr- from then till now, what's your perspective on you know, targeting which journals to publish in. Cause like I said, I would, I would assume whichever journal you publish in, you, you will increase that journal's impact factor. Yeah, that's true. And generally speaking, most people in, you know, in applied linguistics and other fields tend to gravitate towards highly ranking journals because publishing in them would, is prestigious. And I think we should take things into our hands because at the end of the day, the impact factor is a commercial product created by a company for their own profit. And we academia, in academia, no matter how unhappy and how much criticism we level at that, the concept of impact factors they don't have to listen to us. It's just a commercial product. So we should, you know, we should collectively think what journals we should publish in. Should we publish in open access journals, for example? Should we publish in journals that about to receive impact factors, for example, so that we help them get an impact factor? So, yeah, I think we should consciously and collectively target certain journals that need this type of attention in order to help that journals, especially open access journals. Right. So should, well, let's get into the post print pledge then, and then we can talk about kind of the future, how you see the future playing out. So what's, can you tell people about, now this is something I've seen online um, for a few months now. And there's a guy, I think, a professor from University of Virginia who's involved in this as well, or at least I saw a link to yeah. his Twitter. So can you can you talk about how this all came about and wh- where you are with it now? Okay. So first, let's talk about terminology. What is a post-print? There is a post-print and there is a pre-print. And I guess most people are familiar with preprints. The preprint simply means your first draft that you submit, you want that you want to publish. It hasn't been, it hasn't gone through peer review. It hasn't been accepted by a journal. Some people may hesitate to share their preprints online because they might be concerned that their work might be scooped or they want to keep it a secret until it is published, or because they are concerned that there might be some embarrassing mistakes, they don't want to 
show people this word, although advocates of preprints will dispute these ideas. And some of them would even say that if you share your preprint online, you actually protect your work because nobody can steal it anymore because it's under your name publicly. Mm. And it kind of makes sense because how do you know that your work is not going to be stolen when you send it for peer review? After all, reviewers are anonymous, mm -hmm. right? You don't know who read your work once you send it to a journal. So it could, and this did happen, actually, it's not fantasy. Did happen that some people submitted their work to a journal. The journal sent it to anonymous reviewers. The reviewer passed a copy of that journal to a friend, and then from that friend to a second friend, and from that second friend to a third friend. And then eventually somebody said, oh, let me put my name on this work and publish it. And they did so before the original people published their research. <laughs> wow. I think I heard that story before. I didn't know it was yeah. real. <laughs> yeah, it's a real I story. I thought it was a folk story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a anyway, nightmare you tell your academics before you before you tuck them in the bed. That's a real story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but here we are not talking about preprints. We are talking about a related idea called the post print, and post means post peer review. The paper that has been accepted that's about to be published. It's no longer called the pre-print, because the pre means pre-peer review. It's the post-peer review. Now, what we did was that we surveyed 60 journals in our field to see their copyright policies in relation to the post-print. Again, the post-print is your, your draft. It's the draft that you have in Word Microsoft that has been accepted for publication. It's not the typeset, copy-edited, pretty looking format that the journal publishes. It's, right. you know, your Word document, you convert it to a PDF. That becomes a post print because it has, it's about to be published online. Um, so we looked at 60 different journals and um, we looked about their policies regarding post prints. Can you, are you legally allowed to share your preprint your post print online or not. And we saw that many publishers in our field actually allow you to do that. If you do that, you are not violating any copyright laws. And the most progressive publishers in our field in relation to post prints are Cambridge, Elsevier, I was surprised, mm. John Benjamins, Sage, Emerald, and a few others. These are the famous publishers. The least progressive publisher in our field, again, in relation to post-prints, is Wiley. Hmm. I was surprised. I thought Elsevier would be the evil publisher in terms of, you know, I'm not saying Elsevier is a saint, right. but in terms of post-prints, it's Wiley. And Wiley has an embargo period for two years, which is a long, you know, before you can share your post print online. And Language Learning, which is published by Wiley, lobbied Wiley to reduce that. And after lobbying, they agreed to reduce it for that journal to one year only. 
which is still, you know, why do we have to wait one year before sharing the postprint? So what happens if you if you share your paper on ResearchGate and in a in a Wiley journal? What's the repercussions of that? Um, if you might receive, um, um, there is a small chance that Wiley might figure this out and then con- they might contact ResearchGate and ResearchGate will take it down and send you an email saying we took it down because it violates, you know, copyrights. That's what would, it happened to me, I think, twice. Okay. Uh, but you didn't received- get fined or anything. No, 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 no. They, they, they just take it offline. Hmm. Yeah, they ask, don't do it again or, you know, etc., etc. Yeah, because I have to be honest, I never really thought about it. About, you know, because I, I, I read a lot of stuff on ResearchGate. And I, and, I, and I see sometimes you have to request the text from the author, right? In that case, what's the yeah, rule, what's you, the rule you, for you that? Can, yeah, technically... Everybody is allowed to share their paper with other people at a personal level. Oh, I see. As opposed to posting it online for everybody to read. So if somebody contacts me requesting a copy, whether it's by email, whether it's through request article at ResearchGate or any other means, I can share the copy with them. That's no problem at all. Yeah, I mean, it seems that the early career researchers, the ones that don't have access to the libraries and maybe don't have the full-time positions yet, they're hurt the most with the closed access. And then the academics on the other side who are established in the field, they're hurt by not being um, uh, compensated for their efforts, right? I, I see this a lot on Facebook or Twitter, academics in the field getting emails every day to review journal articles. Um Editors, you know, getting burned out by the amount of work it takes to edit, to be the editor for a journal. So I do get your point that it seems like this system, as far as just open access, you'd think from a scientific perspective, you would want all of these open access to share, you know, to, to, to move the field forward, right? Yeah, definitely. And actually, even with journals that are restrictive in relation to sharing postprints, some people have suggested a loophole in the system. So in, um, if a publisher does not allow you to share the, the accepted version of your paper, the postprint, what you could do, according to you know people who suggested this loophole, is that when you submit your article to a paper, usually you first receive a major revision saying change this and that. You do that and resubmit. Then you receive a minor revision. When you receive a minor revision, in most cases, this means that your paper is pretty much accepted for publication. We know that. You know, just, you know, please, you know, there is two missing references. Please include them. Please follow this, the in-house style in this paragraph. Do this, do that, and resubmit and make sure that you have full, full details included. De-anonymize your manuscript when you resubmit because we will pu- publish it, etc., etc. That's, you are, your paper is to be published. Now your paper technically has not been published. So at this, at this stage, 
If you share that version online, it's technically a preprint because it hasn't been accepted. But that's the final version that would be published. If you quickly share it as a preprint and then say the next day your the decision letter comes saying that it has been accepted, you shared it as a preprint, not as a postprint. And very few publishers would dare to restrict you from publishing preprints. Can you imagine how regressive you will have to be to say you can't even share a preprint? You know, some mm. some publishers do it with books and book chapters. That's that's different. But with journals to restrict preprints, you know, nobody would want to do that because, you know, social media will, will eat you alive if you do that. Do you think so, so, yeah, so the, the postprint, you know, going back to the postprint is we created this initiative. It's currently hosted on my own personal website. You just go and sign your name and click submit. What you do is that you pledge that for future publications in line with copyright policies, we are not asking you to be aggressive in any way like the cost of knowledge. You, you boycott publishers and not review to them or publish. No. Publish whenever you want, but once you, when you successfully publish a paper in line with copyright policies, they allow you to share the postprint. Sometimes there is an embargo period. You go and post your accepted version online. And I ask myself, who would not want to do this? Because if you look at the percentage of potential readership of your article, who will lose access because of paywalls. There are researchers from other countries who don't have subscriptions. There are students, just as you said, who don't have access. There are course instructors who want to assign this uh, reading article to, as, a, as a reading assignment to their students, but they can't because it's behind the paywall. There are teachers and practitioners who want to read your paper and benefit from it for their um, practice. There might be non-academics who just want to read it because they pay the taxes, right? You know, for grants and things, they want to read it. And this closed access, you can see the percentage of people who the potential readership that you your article will lose for decades because in our field say applied linguistics we still cite papers published 10 years ago or 20 years ago or even 30 years ago in some other fields they may not may, may long, no longer cite papers like published you know 10 or 20 years ago but we do mm. so you can imagine just for being lazy not to spend five minutes to share your article online, which is completely within your law, your rights. You can imagine the potential loss that this will create. Hmm. So who is the, who is this professor from University of Virginia? Yeah, he is Brian Nosek, and he is actually the founder of the Center for Open Science. It's it's where people go and share postprints and preprints and pre-registration. We talked about pre-registration previously. Is on the OSF. Okay. Stands for Open Science Framework. So he's the founder or the co-founder of that project. 
Um, well, the link that you shared for uh, Zoltan's obituary, I think, is on that framework. Pretty sure. Yes. Yes. True. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so where where do you think this is all going? Okay, that's an interesting question. I, I and I think a better format for that question should be where we should be going. Okay. Because <laughs> we should have a choice where we go. And we should have a say in our direction, okay? And just as you said previously, death to the publisher, basically. Open science means death to the publisher. We don't have to beat about around the bush because if everything is open access, publishers will lose money and go bankrupt. And they should, they should, because it's an outdated concept. We don't need publishers to do the copy ed editing and the typesetting we don't really need to see pretty pretty prettily formatted articles to read you know just an article written in a preprint format is good enough for us we want to read the information really mm -hmm. yeah and we should take things into our hands <clears throat> it's universities and societies that should now create journals because if you go back to history again, and the first journal in history, like 400-something years ago, was created by the Royal Society in the UK. That journal was called the Philosophical Transactions of the, Social, Social, of the Royal Society in 1665. And, you know, Philosophical transaction at that time the word philosophy meant science or nature. It wasn't meant, didn't mean philosophy in what we mean today. Mm. And that journal was established by a, a, a scientific society. That's what should happen now. Societies and universities should be the ones who set up journals. Because authors are academics, reviewers are academics, editors are academics, they may need one secretary from the university to do, you know, to answer emails and things and do some, you know, paperwork. And that's it. We take things into our hands. We have a repository online, PDF, no need for printing anymore. You know, who, you know, there is no need to print, to have print issues anymore. You know, so, if you prefer, if you, if you prefer to read it on paper, you go and buy yourself a printer, print whatever you want to print. You so know? this sounds similar to iApple. You know, you have yes. A, so I you're talking Apple, about yes. you're talking a membership where people pay. So you're saying the money comes from within. It doesn't come because I think in yes. the chapter you did mention another alternative where the companies or or some society would sponsor a journal. So you you would get external funding, but you're you're actually recommending it's all internal funding from within I mean, the society. Yeah, I mean societies like, for example, IAPL or the American Association for Applied Linguistics, they do get some income from from membership fees, annual fees, and people pay their these fees because they get something in return, like workshops and discounts and conferences and other things. So they are paying for something else, but the the association has a budget. This is a lot, you know. If you have a lot of members, you can get a lot of money in your budget, and they can allocate easily allocate a bit of that budget 
to establishing a journal. It will not cost them much because everybody will do the labor for free. The same for universities. Universities, if they switch to, let's imagine, you know, hypothetically that we cancel all commercial journals and all journals become university-based, supported by the university. Mm -hmm. You can only imagine how much the universities would save if they don't pay subscriptions anymore. A lot of money, billions of dollars. And, and currently, you know, believe it or not, there are major, major universities in the West who are canceling subscriptions because they can't afford it. For example, I was talking with a professor at a major UK university recently, and he was saying that he no longer has access to most of the journals he needs. Mm. And I was saying, what do you mean you are in, at a major university, you have all these subscriptions? He said, that was before Brexit. Before Brexit, European students would come to his university and other UK universities because they received a discount because they were in the European Union. After Brexit, they don't get, get that discount anymore, so tuition fees became too high for them. So they go to study somewhere else. Because of that, fewer students are coming to the university. So this means less income. So the university has to manage with the amount of income they have. So they cancel subscription fees. Now, professors have to suffer now. And I'm sure students will have to suffer. Well, yeah, also. I mean, tuition fees get increased as well, right? So, I mean, this conversation also ties into... I, sometimes I, I see how much the cost of some of these books are. Yeah. And, you know, $170 for a book. And I yeah. think, you know, who's buying that? It just has to be the libraries, right? So the libraries, not only they're paying for all these access fees to the journals, they're also paying these exorbitant prices for these books, yeah. right? And they have to be up to date with everything every year, whenever something comes out. Crazy. It's absolutely mad. So the iApple model, that's that's kind of what where you're seeing this going. Because I, I would say it would be nice for the editors and the reviewers to get compensated. I, I, I That's the only part of the conversation I think I disagreed with you. It would be nice for a society like iApple. So I know you – I think there's rotating editors. So you, you pass off. Um, but it's a lot of work. So shouldn't they – shouldn't you budget in some money either the internal funding to, to pay – the editors and the reviewers for their time at least, or if there's an external funding, allocate some money for the reviewers and the editors. Cause it's just, it's time away from your own research really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there, you know, researchers want compensation when they do this work. Obviously the compensation could be financial and it could be, you know, it could be credit in their institutions when they apply for promotion, for example, it could become a requirement that you do some community service, voluntary community service, and you list the, the work that you did as a requirement to, to be eligible for promotion, for example. But I, I would say, why does it have to be voluntary to be eligible for promotion? I, I'm just okay. saying, okay. personally, pers I'm yeah, not at that. Yeah, go ahead. Is to pay... Uh, reviewers to to become for their job when they review and there have been some debates about this I have a lecture on 
the possible consequences of paying reviewers and the controversies that this might create. And um, there are, you know, pros and cons. So briefly, if you pay reviewers and it becomes a job, you can imagine how many people would want to do it just to get the money, even though it's, it's you know, they may not be really interested in doing this. It might be even outside their expertise, but they say, hey, 100 bucks, you know, just say good, recommended for publication, for example. That's great paper, for example. And if they feel they are employed by the journal and by the editor, some of them might want to tell the editor what they think the editor wants to hear because it's, he, he's, he or she is their boss, right? You know, I will tell you what you want to hear so that you pay me. I'm your employee now. So, yeah, there are a lot of dynamics, possible dynamics that many people speculated about if you start paying people. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. You know, I'm not talking about this. I'm saying there are a lot of things that could come up when we start paying people. But here's here's what I'm – from my perspective, now I'm, at, I'm not at this point yet, but I would – my gut instinct would just to say no because I don't have time. Um, and you mentioned it in the chapter. That is the reverse side of the argument when you don't pay people. There is a lot of motivation to just decline. Like what is it? What does it hurt if you just decline? But if enough good people decline, then you're not getting good reviewers anyway. So, couldn't you set up a structure where you have an editor team, and that person gets paid more, and they expect the, the you know the reviewers, or there's um, I don't know, there's a system where you find good reviewers, you vet them, um, because uh, if you're not getting paid, and you're someone like I don't know Kim Knowles or. Peter McIntyre, Jean-Marc Duvalde, and every day you're getting emails to to review journal articles every day. I think I saw something on Facebook. I don't know who said it. One of them said it just feels like spam. Yeah. <laughs> so they're probably just rejecting all the time anyway, right? So if there's someone that's a you know someone who who should be reviewing these papers, because um for for thesis reviews th those people get paid. True. Right, external yeah. reviewers—they get paid. What's the difference? It's still the amount of time to sit down and read through something critically, where you could be, you know, out taking your dog for a walk. You could be doing your own research. You could be doing a number of things. I think yeah. the payment is a good incentive. Yeah, it is an incentive. But if we put it in context, you know, we are advocating for open science, and ideally, open science should be diamond level open access, which means neither the author pays any 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 publication fees, nor the reader pays any um, any um, subscription fees. So where are you going to get this money from to pay reviewers? And if you think about it, let's say that an issue publishes, a journal publishes like 20 articles a year, for example. And the rejection rate is like 80%. So if you do the math, how many papers do you have to review? And on average, you need two or three reviewers per paper. And you have to pay these reviewers no matter what you know they say, whether it's accept or reject. So if 20, if you do the math, you know, 
it will be like over 100 papers that you have to review. And if you have three reviewers, that would be like over 300 reviewers that you have to pay. Uh, you can do, if you think about it, there is a lot of money involved. And some people might say, okay, we can't afford, we are a very small society. We can't afford this. But the other publisher who does pay reviewers is getting all the good reviewers from us. And we are left with the poor reviewers. And now we are stigmatized because we don't pay anything. And people say, oh, you are publishing for these people. Go and publish for Elsevier because they pay you this money. See, there, I mean, I'm not saying I'm for or against. I'm saying there are a lot of dynamics that could happen once we introduce something. And as I said, I was talking about this particular issue in a lecture I gave in China about complexity theory. And my point was that complex systems are unpredictable. Okay. Once you introduce something into a complex system and you perturb the system, what's going to happen next is very difficult. So many things could come up. So many things could change. So yeah, I could give you the link to that lecture. If anybody is interested, you can put the link on in the um, under the uh, but, but how do you how can you argue what's the difference between an external thesis reviewer i mean besides the amount of time like what if we broke it down by the hour what's the difference as far as the critical is it the is it that the external thesis reviewer has to fill up more paperwork and has to do more things why are they paid for their time okay. and the article reviewers are not yeah some people might argue that the student who is requesting a viva is paying tuition fees, mm -hmm. and part of that tuition fees is going to um, the external reviewer. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. All right. I just I don't know. What about you? You when you get emails to review things, do you put a limit on yourself? Um, you only have a certain amount of hours in the day, right? You have a lot of projects going on. What's your mindset when you get when you get requested to review papers? Okay, so what I do, you know, it might be surprising to some people, but I think that's completely reasonable. What happens to me, sometimes I receive requests from journals that I didn't even make an account at, and they contact me. Some journals, I specifically went to, to my profile and requested not to be contacted for peer review, but I still receive requests despite that. So what I do is that I don't reject emails from these publishers. I just, just let them wait and wait and wait. Hopefully they will learn the lesson and not send me requests, unsolicited requests again. And this is only for shady publishers, not for genuine publishers who send um, um, review invitations. Um, well, what about for because, the, genu the genuine publishers? Yeah, if it's if it's within my scope, I would accept a review. If it's outside my interest and expertise, then I will decline. But these shady publishers, sometimes I receive requests to review things about surgery and neuroscience and other things. <laughs> Something, didn't you look at my Google Scholar profile? <laughs> didn't you? So, so I think if I 
reply with a decline, I am in a way reinforcing them. Sometimes I receive multiple requests from the journal, each request like five minutes apart from the same editor. He's like sending mass requests to people, you know, like, you know, some people will accept these requests. And if I go with them, go with the flow and decline, I am in a way reinforcing this questionable behavior. So I just ignore them. You know, I didn't receive anything. Let them wait. Yeah, that's the, the well, strategy. We've mentioned it before, but iApple, uh, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably aware because there have been so many guests that are part of that organization. Um, I, I'm, I'm a member of iApple. I think it's $50 a year, right? And um, and I guess some of the, some of those costs, what do those costs go for? Because I was again, I was saying, why can't you use some of that money to pay the reviewers if I'm joining the society because I respect the people involved, involved, I'm reading their papers, I'm going to their presentations, these are people that I respect, why would that be a problem to take some of that money and pay the editors of the journal? Yeah, um, I, I'm not a member of the board of iApple, so I don't know why what they use the budget for, but I would imagine that they use it to pay for for conferences, organized conferences, for the platform they use for the the journal and for other costs. Just uh, infrastructure, uh, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, infrastructure. But but I don't know. I'm not a member of the board, so right. I have no information. All right. Well, we discussed a lot. Wow, that hour went by really fast. So I will put the links up on uh, the show notes for people to check out uh, the chapter um, again, the name of the chapter is Open Science and Applied Linguistics, an Introduction to Metascience. We don't know when this uh, chapter will be released, but um, people can read this, right? Yes. On your research gate. Yes. So they'll, And then we'll put links up to your website and links to that YouTube video that you, you mentioned. And to, yeah. and to the post-print pledge. So. Yeah, I've said yeah, this. So please, yeah, so please if, if you like the post print pledge, please go and sign up and let's keep the momentum going. Um, yeah, I've said this many times before. Uh, it's always great talking to you, and I it be it's it would be great to have you on anytime. I think you should. Um, it wouldn't be very good for for me, uh, but uh, but I think you should start your own podcast. I think you. <laughs> You'd be great. I would. I would love to listen to you just talk about lots of different topics. You just seem so well read. So, um, have you ever thought about doing that? Actually, I'm part of the motivation sig of iApple, and um, I am the chair of that sig. And that's actually my plan. I'm planning to have some guests come. Oh, great. Just like you are, you are doing. But the way we are thinking of doing it is that we are planning to have a live video with live audience. Nice. Okay, so that people can at least come together, you know, once every one or two months, you know, to talk with each other and have a guest speaking and they have a chance to ask questions and interact, you know, in real time. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, I'll definitely be tuning in. I'll be tuning into that. That'll be, that'll be great. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Since I said it loud, so I am committed to it now, I guess. 
you you spoke it into existence, as they say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Ali Al-Hori, thank you so much for coming back on Lost in Citations. Thank you very much for having me again. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.